0: the forward together podcast from hollywood trust with paul gosling and gerard dean welcome to the forward together podcast Um, i'm gerard dean and i'm joined today as always by paul gosling hi gerard Right, so forward together as a podcast produced by Hollywell Trust, we're a community relations community development organisation based at the heart of Derry. So forward together as an examination of four questions uh, about increasing the civic voice here in Northern Ireland, creating a more shared and integrated society, dealing with the past and the constitutional question. And we ask these questions, or rather, Paul Gosling asks these questions, of civic leaders and uh, political leaders as well. So Paul, today uh, you we're having a conversation or you have had a conversation with Philip Gilliland.
1: Yeah, Philip's a, a well-known figure in the city of Derry in the northwest. He's the former president of the London Derry Chamber of Commerce and also he is a solicitor. In fact, is the, the managing partner of Caldwell and Robinson uh, and specializing in business law. And actually we talk about law as part of the mm. conversation that's coming up.
0: Okay. Um, so Philip starts I think by talking about uh, leadership. Leadership has been a common theme that has come up, and a number of interviews come up here again today.
1: Absolutely, I think that probably the majority of the interviewees have expressed frustration at the lack of quality leadership in mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, and have said that to to move on from the mire that we're in, really, we need f- inspirational figures that are going to lead us to a better place.
0: Yeah. And I suppose the better place that they might be leading, to, or leading us to is a shared society. But And Philip touches on some of the structural challenges that we have to overcome if we're going to achieve that.
1: Yeah, and, and also he talks about statistics. I mean, he argues that probably 99% of people want... A shared society, mm. And he also says, well, actually, you know, apart from a few people with guns, then actually broadly, we, we get on pretty well with each other. Uh, and the other thing he says, and this is speaking as someone who is a long term school governor, is, you know, the 70,000 surplus places in schools in Northern Ireland. Mm. And the implication from what he's saying clearly is, you know, how do you expect to, the budgets to set to, to, yeah. to up yeah. balance yeah. And, and how do you expect to have high quality School outcomes when you've got so many surplus places, which means so much wasted money, basically. Mm. Uh, And and he takes the view, well, you know, you 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 have to take a leadership role to push together the schools to create a more integrated structural society, starting with schools. Okay. Well, let's hear from Philip now. Philip Gilliland, notable figure in the city of Derry, former president of Londonary Chamber of Commerce. Philip, thanks very much for doing this. Let's mm. head straight into this. How do we strengthen civil society in ways that
2: enable us to make progress? Hmm. Um, I think we all know Northern Ireland is um, notable in Western Europe for um, being beholden in politics to very um, uncivil society-like forces. I can't think of anywhere else off the top of my head in, in Western Europe... Where um, when people propose something politically, you think how it's going to play first in in the most e- extreme um, uh, impoverished ghetto parts of our society. Um, I can't see that happening in London or Dublin or Paris or Madrid or anywhere else. So um, we have a um, an issue that we don't have as uh, a what you might call a, a traditional political class. Um, uh, for whatever reasons, the. Um, people who might otherwise be involved in leadership in society um, uh, feel they do not want to push, put their head above the parapet. Uh, I think we have to accept that there is fear, um, a legacy of, of political violence over a very long time. There is fear um, on the part of people um, afraid to say what they really feel. Um, uh, you know, Fear in a, what is unfortunately still a tribal society, fear of, of uh, breaking ranks. And being um, you know, accused of being disloyal to your own to your own lot, which sounds very medieval, but I think that's the way that most people still think. So we have to um, encourage uh, people to to um, say whatever they you know say whatever they think is to, to feel empowered to say what they feel uh, about um, progress in society. And um, I, I can't think of any evidence recently of bully boy tactics on the part of. Um, paramilitaries in either tribe um, stopping people saying what they feel but if you are my age which is 52 you have a long memory of um, you know of that kind of um, intimidation real or imagined but it was it's there and it's easier sometimes people to default to doing nothing so we have to um, encourage people to um, stand up and say what they feel there is a truism here which I always say which is that uh, uh, bad things happen when good people do nothing. And it's too easy in Northern Ireland for good people to do nothing. Now, structurally, we have an issue, which is
1: the Civic Forum failed to continue its existence and wasn't particularly effective when it did exist. So do you think there are structurally things we could do to strengthen civic society?
2: Mm. Yeah, I've spent, spent as you, you know, I've spent a long number of years, possibly... Eight or ten years, probably eight years, in, in business politics through, you know, through my involvement as an officer in the London Area Chamber of Commerce, and actually, I do f- feel that um, business, some business organisations, are a very good vehicle for leadership in civic society. They do allow um, people to, um, uh, you know, I guess, emancipate themselves and say what they feel. Um, certainly, my experience uh, of being a business leader, I suppose. Um, is that um, the audience that we uh, were speaking to, which is not just uh, the businesses who are our members here in Derry, but also, and not just the business community, the wider business community, but actually all of society, um, uh, want to be led. They want leadership. They don't want spokespeople who Mm -hmm. remind everybody about all of the old, I don't know, fears and bogeymen of the past. They actually want go forward leadership. Um, uh, So there are already... But certainly that's the one I've had experience with, and I think the same in the, probably true in the agri-sector with the two farming unions. I think generally give fairly good leadership, I think, in their areas. Um, uh, structurally, to, to get other people involved in politics, uh, in leadership, it's very difficult to tell. I think one of the big obstacles in... Encouraging people to to get involved in a political discussion is, um, I think, an awful lot of people now. I regret to say, think that the political institution of Northern Ireland is broken, and to even get behind, you know, thinking about you know getting involved in a a political party that might get you an assembly seat. Well, what's, what's what what the hell good is that going to do? You know, and I think we have got a profound issue that the system of you know, politics here is is broken
1: Now you mentioned business organisations and those are of course the ones that were mm. standing up and listened to over Brexit mm. more than perhaps any yes. other structural organisation but there's a lot of different business organisations yes, so are, do you yeah. think there should be a
2: forum which brings them together so that <laughs> they can create a more unified voice yeah. Possibly yes um, um, I actually, I mean, I, I've, it's probably two years since, it is two years since I left the board of, of, of I mean, I was not for any reason other than I reached to the end of my my time. I had to leave the board of the chamber. But um, I know that the certainly, uh, Northern Ireland Chamber and londonderry Chamber of Commerce um, work very closely together now. In the past, they didn't always do so, but they certainly do now. I don't have, I don't know too much about um, the IOD or the CBI I know that um, the manufacturers' organisation headed by Stephen, Stephen um, Kelly has been very uh, good at representing uh, manufacturers specifically and got great audience and, and gave great leadership. Um, I don't get the sense that those business organisations are pulling apart, actually. I do get the sense that even though there are a lot of them, and I take that point nevertheless at the moment, I get the sense that they're all pretty much saying the same thing. Um, so And thank in, in a strange way, thank goodness that they did get a clear run at um, the policy makers. And they got a very clear run at the Brexit uh, negotiating team in London. And I think they've had a pretty clear run at the Brexit team in the South as well. So... Um, and they are reasonable, rational, and uh, obviously they're speaking about not just about their own members. I think that's wrong. They're speaking about the economic well-being of society going forward, and in that sense, it's a mandate from, you know, to uh, to speak about the entirety of the of, of the futures for all of us in society. Now, to continue the
1: theme of how we get people to work together. I mean, how do you think we should move towards a genuinely
2: shared and integrated society? this is the this is the big question this is the, this is the biggie you know, and in my head, when I think about this, and I think about this a lot, I think an awful lot of people think about this a lot. everybody wants a, pretty much everybody wants a shared society, except of course for the the nationalists and unionist politicians who benefit from a segregated society um, but the um, you know pretty much everything has been tried here to try and get a shared society, and which ju- and it just can 't work the Structurally, the, the odds are totally stacked against us. Um, stacked against getting a, um, a shared society. If we just look at the forces um, within Northern Ireland, the British uh, the government—they're not re- interested. It's, it's not their bag. They don't want to show leadership in that area. It's something for apparently us to show leadership over uh, inside Northern Ireland, where you've got Tweedledee and Tweedledum politics. Um, you know, neither side, um, in terms of that institutionalized. Uh, political setup is prepared to um, um, share society because, for reasons that can I can only imagine are are selfish. You know, uh, if I if I allow people to share share their identity, then why would they vote for me? You know, it's it is after all tribal politics. Um, so it's very difficult to know what to do within Northern Ireland to actually break that f- horrendous institutionalised um, tribal paralysis that we're in Um, people on the ground are not interested in, in, I mean one of the ironies of Northern Ireland is if you look at us politically you'd think that we were about to go back to war um, but other than a couple of idiots with guns on the dissident side and maybe a f- smaller number of idiots with guns on the loyalist side, um, actually ninety nine percent of people here get on actually really well, much better than they ever did. People on the ground are really are getting on grand. you know I mean obviously it'd be better if we shared our education, but um, the irony is that we can 't actually deliver that um, on the ground sense into you know when we, go, when we go into the ballot box, we vote for the same old idiots. So, um, to me, uh, despite, despite be, being in my middle age, I have decided that it is time to be radical. I can't see how we can break the logjam without having fundamental constitutional change.
1: We'll come to that in a, in a moment. I mean, the, the opinion polls suggest there's significant support for integrated schooling, but... Mm. Very little progress is made in terms of the numbers. Yeah, yeah
2: it is. It's a de- like, I mean, I'm a lawyer. The devil is always in the detail, isn't it? So people think it's a good idea, but... And it's the but part. Um, uh, you know, well, you know, the standard middle-class response is, yeah, it sounds great, but I might do it for primary school, but no, I wouldn't risk not sending Little Johnny to a grammar school. Or, um, you know, what does it actually mean? You know, and, and you have, you know the integrated sector and, you know, how good is it at second level in terms of those standards, actually, I think it's good. Um, Then you've got, you know, Catholic schools and you've got um, controlled schools or voluntary grammars, some of which are entirely one flavour only, actually, but some of which have managed to achieve a decent mix despite their their ethos. You know, what is a decent mix? I would say anything above 20% is a pretty decent mix, um... Uh, and the difference, you know, as a parent of three children, um, two of whom have been through a school with an over twenty percent mix, and one of them went to school that um, didn't, and and she was of the of the of the non of the of the minority tribe. Um, there's a huge difference between kids who grow up in a in a shared uh, schooling and kids that don't. And it's not the kids that are any different in terms of the raw material of the kids. It's the environment they're they're cultured in um the difference is vast. people who are you know kids have gone through the mono environment then have to unlearn all of those um worldviews that they received um when they leave uh, if they're lucky and people who didn't go to a mono and didn't go to school in a mono environment um don't have to unlearn those things because they never learned them in the first place. but how do we make progress um devils in the detail to me I think the, the key to one of the keys to unlocking this is the fact that we have i don 't know what the current stat is, but something like sixty or seventy thousand too many school places and I used to be chair of a board of governor of of a religiously mixed primary school um, and um, I know that certainly when I was was involved in that and i think it 's still the same now that the annual budget the annual subvention per per child is continuing to reduce i think that 's still the case. Um, And that's just clearly nuts. So every school can't perform uh, while we have 70,000 too many school places. Surely somebody needs to say, isn't the problem that we've got 70,000 too many school places? Once we acknowledge the fact that we've got 70,000 too many school places or whatever the number is, then we have to work out what is the best way to rationalise schools. And when we rationalise schools, guess what? We're going to have to actually mix a few of them because it's the only way to do it. There's no other way in... To do it in in many situations, some situations you can rationalise within a tribe, but in in more country places, certainly in the West, you're going to have to going to have to um, have multi-flavoured uh, schools. I'm not, not against, um, fully enough ethos education, provided that the dominant ethos um, understands that it has to accommodate uh, kids who aren't of that ethos. Um, if we we're being properly radical about it, we might even incentivize using something akin to the um, anti-discrimination legislation that we have in place, where, you know, if, you are, if a school is not able to attract um, an appropriate minority of its um, students from the non-ethos background, then you get penalised financially as a school. In other words, put the onus on the school to get rid of the chill. Why is it that, you know, kids from background A don't apply to go to school of background B, ethos, and vice versa? You know, we should say it's the emphasis, the onus should be on the school to um, uh, get rid of that chill. And there are examples uh, of uh, of Catholic ethos schools that uh, you know have happily you know over twenty percent Protestant kids or kids in Protestant backgrounds, and vice versa. Um, Why shouldn't we reward those guys?
1: Now, talking of problem areas, and you're a lawyer, so this is right up your street. I mean, how do we deal with the past in a way that takes us
2: forward? Mm. Oh, you're asking all whole easy questions. <laughs> so, and,
1: and and what do we do about reconciliation?
2: Okay, uh, two things very closely linked. Um, so technically, I'm not a criminal lawyer, so I can't answer directly about about um, the technicalities. But my sense of um, the the administration of justice and the past is that it's it's a it's just a, a so vast and so difficult a task to to have legal just, to apply legal justice to events of, you know, over 20 years ago, that it's just not practical. It's just not practical. Um, uh, and somebody can correct me, but I don't think that is correctable. I think that is correct, that, you know, you've got how many unsolved murders and, and then multiply that by a factor of whatever 10 for unsolved, you know, other acts of violence, probably 20 or 30 or more, other unsolved acts of violence um, Trying to, and you know, many of the witnesses are dead, and many of the witnesses who are still alive, um, uh, you know, with the passage of time, may not even, you know, their memories may be playing tricks; may not even remember what they think they remember, you know, etc. What is the truth? Um, uh, With with a very heavy heart, I can't see us going back to the administration of justice in in the technical sense, in the legal, in the you know, juridical sense, to to um, deal with, with the past. Uh, actually mice and, and all of us who are over the age of probably, I don't know, 45 um, have to a lesser or greater degree um, been, suffered some degree of trauma as a result of violence. I mean, obviously, some people suffered vast trauma and others only very mild peripheral trauma, but we're all, we're all a part of it. I mean, I, you know, probably, when I say all, I would say actually a healthy majority of people over the age of 45 carry with them some some degree of trauma about the past. Uh, we all grew up here. Um, so what is the right way to deal with that, um, given the fact that the administration of justice in the technical sense is probably not um, going to d- deliver the answers, um, certainly not going to deliver a lot of the truth? What actually is required, in my view, if it were possible, is a policy of truth, um, why don't we? Why don't don't the forces of the state, the government? Why doesn't? Why don't the um, Sinn Fein, the IRA, um, uh, why don't the loyalist uh, paramilitaries and politicians? Why don't they tell us what happened? You know, I can think of loads of examples. People I like, who are fam- connected, you know, family members or connected to us or schoolmates, dads or whatever, who were who were um, killed. Nobody has a clue who killed them and why they were killed. But well, somebody knows, and it's far, far too late. For um, those people to be the, the people who pulled the trigger, and the people who ordered them to pull the trigger, it's too late for them to go to jail. Jail is not the point. But what would be extremely good from the healing process is to know well why did you pull the trigger? What was it in you that said that was a good idea? Um, and who? And you, were you just following orders? But why did you follow orders? And the person who gave the orders? Why did you give the order? Why do you think that was a good idea? But I suppose if you're going to have a truth
1: process, you have to focus a lot on not re-traumatizing people, which means you probably have to invest very substantially in psychological support services alongside that process.
2: I think it also. I think that's a fair point. But I think it has to be an opt-in process. You know, I mean, because every victim will will um, want to deal with this differently. You know, some victim will say, "I'm up for that. I'm ready for it." And others will say, no, that will just rake over the coals, as you say, and I don't want it. And I think it has to be an opt-in process. Do you want to be a part of this? We may not be able to achieve anything at all, but is it worth being a part of or not? Um, and I think every victim would have to answer that question. Um, the people who were the perpetrators, for want of a better description, um, also—I mean, you know I mean, what's the incentive for them to do it? Well, I would say one of the incentives for them to do it, and this is a generalisation, and I don't know many people who openly say they were perpetrators, um, but I imagine the toll on their own mental health must be phenomenal. You know, very, very few people who got involved in in paramilitary uh, activity or or violence perpetrated by the state actually were what you might call sociopaths. I mean, you know, 99% of people who got involved in that sort of thing for whatever reason believed they were doing the right thing. Um, but a part of that time was the dehumanisation of the person who was going to be your victim. And now that we are actually, you know, talking to each other again, it must be quite challenging for the perpetrator to find um, a humanised um, person associated with their victim. And must be, you know when the, when the perpetrator goes home and they say, oh, "Goodness me, and I did that to his brother. Why did I do it?" You know. And I think there's a tremendous toll on their own mental health as well and an awful lot of this is in the territory of mental health support you know we are um, quite a damaged society particularly for people over the age of 45 and of course I am told I'm not an expert in this field that there are um, intra-family consequences for the next generation which may or may not contribute uh, explain one of, the, you know, one of the reasons why we have such a high suicide rate amongst young people. Is there some connection there? I don't know. And the
1: last difficult question is how do we have the constitutional conversation in ways
2: that aren't threatening to the fabric
1: of our society today? Yeah.
2: Well, actually, I think that's the easy conversation. That's the only one of the questions that's actually easy, easier because, one, you know, we've been given a gift in this process which is called Brexit because um, it's allowed actually those of us who are from a Protestant background which is me um, to be able to um, talk about the heresy of the United Ireland in a way that is not heresy in other words it's allowed us to talk about um, the possibility of constitutional change in a way that doesn't seem to be um, you know, disloyal to tribe uh, because clearly for many of us um, Brexit is not I mean you know, it's not, I mean, that sounds very disrespectful. People, I don't, I should really retract that. It's not, people are entitled to their view. If they think, if it's the right thing to do, that's brilliant. Fill your boots, that's grand. But it clearly has changed the dynamic um, between um, how we deal with our neighbours in the South and how we deal with our neighbours in Britain. You know, it's it's shone a light on the fact that the British don't really know or care very much about Northern Ireland. We knew that anyway. Um, this uh, is shone a light um, on the fact that um, those of us who um, whose businesses are totally integrated into the Republic's economy, which mine is, um, you know, this is not... You know, to have a future where that um, growth in the Irish market for us is in any way impeded, or that presence in the Irish market is in any way impeded, is a threat to jobs and our own livelihoods. And so we're going to vote with our, um, you know, economic future hat on um, the... Uh, and I think it's allowed a lot of us to question um, what is it we, why is it we were unionists in the first place? What's that all about? You know, it, 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 actually, in the past, many of us who who were unionist thought we were more a bit more socially liberal than we didn't. You know, there was a fear of theocracy. Oh, Janie that's that's totally changed. We're now the theocrats apparently. I'm not. i actually. I'm not, I want a socially liberal world. Um, at the the idea of the the socially conservative, uh, moral stuff coming out of unionism is utterly abhorrent to me, and frankly, ironically, rather un-British too. Um, but uh, you know, I think we've got all sorts of reasons now to talk about the constitutional issue in a way that weren't open to us. You know, excuses now to talk about it in a way that those excuses were not available to us in the past. So I actually think that one's more interesting and more easy to talk about. And I see. Now, just occasionally when you have conversations with people who you happen to know are Protestants, actually, most I think, just just about all of those sorts of conversations I've had over the last couple of years, actually, I don't really care whether we've united Ireland or not. I just don't want it to be under the heel of Sinn Féin. That's it. If if it's not under the heel of Sinn Féin, I don't really care. I'm happy with it. You know, don't mind. Um, So I think, actually, there's an awful lot more hot air around that issue than than people might expect. I actually think if there were a voter poll and if it were carried, you know, yes, there'll be some people who would be upset about it, but I don't see it turning into a war, not at all.
1: Philip Gilliland, thank you very much indeed.
2: Okay,
0: that was your interview with Philip Gilliland there. So, Paul, it it touches on justice and what we mean by justice and... uh, Trauma and how is it impacted here as well?
1: Absolutely, and and I think you'd expect this from someone who is a lawyer, even if they're not uh, dealing with criminal law. You know, they they think a lot about what does justice mean and what's law, and and, you know, and how do you deal with the past? And uh, I, I I was struck by some of the phrases that Philip used. One of which was that we should have a policy of truth, and the other was it's just not practical to expect to have criminal justice outcomes on such a vast scale of events during the Troubles and mm. you know that but the other thing he said was uh, again he, he struck me with some of the phrases he used that 99% of those involved believed that they were doing the right thing and also that the toll of mental health on participants must be really severe and I, I'm, you know, we're seeing that and I think one yeah. of the, the themes that we hear among a lot of the conversations not merely the mental ill health that's caused by people who are directly involved one way or another in the troubles but also about how that trauma has passed itself down the generations and really i think we have to take that much more seriously than our society is taking it at the moment okay and then a more current issue i suppose that
0: that keeps coming up again as brexit and philip refers in particular to the
1: relationship that the British government has with Northern Ireland and how it perceives Northern Ireland. Yeah, and and Philip is probably more direct than most people will be in saying that he thinks that uh, Brexit is uh, incredibly damaging to Northern Ireland, and a lot of people think that, but I think Philip's wording was probably more direct and more strong than, than other people. Mm. But he's not just talking about Brexit, he's also saying that despite being uh from a unionist background from a a heritage of protestantism that actually he he welcomes the social liberalism of the south and believes that that's a a much more positive and progressive context for us to move forward which is why you know he's taken the view that he would like to see a united ireland okay well that's it
0: for this episode of the forward together podcast um you can so subscribe to future episodes and past episodes as well through the hollywell trust website hollywelltrust.com through sluggerotool.com or through apple podcasts google Podcasts, stitcher wherever you get your podcasts from uh, so thanks uh, to philip for taking the time to meet with us and to our production team of d kern Emer Eimer doherty and Jacqueline mckay so thanks for listening The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.